Okay, welcome back to the Art Bystander. My name is Rola Flip Kretschmar and I'm very excited about this episode. Uh, I have a fantastic guest with me today from the UK. Uh, so Kate Bryan, you're the Global Director of Art at Soho House. Welcome to the Art Bystander podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Roland Felipe. It's brilliant to be here. So where are you based when we're having this conversation? So I'm currently in South London at home. I live in Brixton, um, pretty cool area of London. And uh, I'm actually just down the road from a Soho house. We have one in Balham now. Nice. I used to live in Brixton for one year, actually. Was, oh, yeah? Yeah, I, I used to live in London four years. And that year was the best, actually. <laughs> it was. <laughs> uh, I lived there in 99. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. Many years ago. <laughs> yeah, so then you're really Brixton? cool. You're the... I'm um, I'm sort of between Brixton and Clapham. To be honest with you, it depends who I'm talking to. If it's like the art world, <laughs> and I always say I live in Brixton because it's just a bit cooler. And if it's someone who genuinely wants to know where my house is, then I'd be like, well, it's sort of really near Clapham North. But uh-huh. for me, I feel like I live in Brixton. Okay. The vibe okay. on my street is very Brixton. We've got a great community here. <laughs> I caught you then. <laughs> great. Mm. So um, be- before we kind of uh, go into your role at So House... Uh, and, you know, I'm obviously uh, super uh, intrigued about, you know, your role and what you do. And you have a fantastic art collection. And let, let's deep dive into that. But I would really want to understand who you are, Kate. Like, where you're born, where you're from, and kind of a li- little bit of a, not a resume, but, you know, your life story in short. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because particularly when you work in the art world, I think where you've come from will largely dictate the way in which you view art. Um, mm-hmm. It is such a sort of personal, meaningful thing. So um, I grew up not very far away from London, but I guess metaphorically millions of miles away because I didn't really have like a kind of a childhood that was in the city or was in museums and galleries. You know, I just, I think I only went to a museum like once or twice before I went to university. I didn't know art history existed. I went to a pretty standard, just sort of state school, not particularly brilliant school. Um, And, uh, but always made art, made art every single day, just loved drawing and painting. Mm. Um, (laughs) I was no Picasso. I was not a child prodigy, but I just (laughs) loved it. And I did obviously, you know, studied art at school and actually they were my best grades. I'm very proud to say that, you know, I don't get to say this often, you know, I got an A and GCSE and A level are big grades here. But it didn't even occur to me that you could work in the art world. It didn't, the thought of even being a contemporary artist was a a very foreign concept to me. In fact, you know, I only really knew about the fact that there were contemporary artists and that London had an art scene when the YBAs happened. And that was about the time that I was sort of 17, 18 and I... Mm -hmm. I remember being really excited about it. And YBA, can you... Oh, sorry. The YBA, so yeah. Damien Hirst, Tracy Emmons, so the young British yeah. artists, these artists that really just set the world on fire, rewrote the rules, really created London as an art scene in a way that it just hadn't been before. 97, like right? There was an exhibition Yeah, well, it was, RCA, it was earlier. Right? I mean, really, they were, they, yeah. were studi- they were coming out of Goldsmiths um, in the late 80s, and then they were really kind of across all the tabloids in the early 90s. Um, and, you know, I think because it was conceptual art, the public had a real, you know, the story in the papers was that, you know, the public hated this, but they didn't actually. I think it really fired the imagination of lots of young people, particularly, and I was one of them. Um, and I ended up was studying the, art history. Sorry, was the mm. Sensation Show, right? That, uh, exactly. Was that but, but the, the yeah, Sensation was, Show yeah. was sort of after that they really had found, mm. um, you know, the Sensation Show was effectively Charles Saatchi's exhibition, who's the great art collector and advertising mm-hmm. mogul. He presented that at the Royal Academy, and that was the first time that en masse the public had been to see this new type of work, which was yeah. largely True. quite controversial, was quite provocative. It was really playing with expected notions of art the role of the viewer you know there were things in there that really actually um made people really angry um but at the same time what it did was really put london on the world stage in terms of you know young creative people who were rewriting the rule book throwing the rule book out actually you know it all been in new york before that and so this was mm-hmm. a really big moment for london it was just a big part of that like kind of cool britannia time we had blur we had oasis yeah, we had the spice true. girls yeah. we had great Tony blair winning the election tony blair you know i didn't want to mention him but yeah it's yeah. all part you know part and parcel of that and of course yeah. london just looked exactly where you needed to be you know and i was obsessed mm-hmm. about getting to london 
<laughs> Same here. I mean, I moved to London '96, so mm. I, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah okay, you were right so... there for all of it. Very cool. <laughs> so you you were really impacted then by everything around you, society, the art world, and, and and did you then decide that you wanted to dedicate your life and career to art? What happened then? I mean, to be honest, I wish I'd had more consciousness of what was happening. I think it's only in hindsight that I really studied it and understood. I just um, mm. I stumbled upon art history. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I was going to do English or history. And then I was literally at like a university fair and they had their stalls organized alphabetically and history of art was next to history. And I was like, what's history <laughs> of art? And they said, well, you know, it's understanding the world through the eyes of artists. And I just I remember it so vividly. It was like my stomach fell out of my body it was such an intense feeling of gravity shifting and I was like that's what I love I just was all I would love hmm. to do like I would love to do that and so went off to university and 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 then I you know then I once I was at university I was like right I'm so passionate about this I've got to make it my life um but of course I had no connections no money you know it, it's quite a um difficult industry to get into it's even harder now but um, I just persevered and I was, you know, I was really lucky um, that I finally did get a break. I applied to about 70 jobs, all very low level wow. jobs. And I got a job making tea effectively and doing the filing <laughs> for the director of the British Museum. And I really found my place there. They were brilliant people. They really helped me um, to have the confidence to progress. And quite quickly, I progressed. I helped the director, who's an incredible man, Neil McGregor, just an extraordinary mind, a great speaker. I used to help him with all his lectures and that was just so formative for me. I'm so old that I would do them on a slide carousel with him. We didn't even have PowerPoint. <laughs> I, I also remember that time. <laughs> yeah, I was really rubbish at it. I always had the slides back to front and I'd get told off. And uh, yeah, and then I and then it was brilliant. I found this company called Art History Abroad and I used mm -hmm. to take unpaid leave from the British Museum and take these gap year students all around Italy teaching them about art. So... You know, if we were in Florence, we'd be there for 10 days. We'd spend the morning at the Uffizi. We'd be talking about Botticelli, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo's Donitondo. And then we'd go for a nice lunch. And then in the afternoon, we'd take them to San Lorenzo Church or something. And, and then we'd oh, take them out partying fantastic. in the evening. Yeah, I mean, the energy we must have had to be able to do that. I, I just, it, it astounds me that I could do it, actually. <laughs> but you had to learn a lot. You had to learn how to fly by the seat of your pants. You had to learn what to do when a church was closed. You had to look after 18 students who were really not much younger than yourself and get them to dinner and get them on coaches. And yeah, God, it was an incredible experience. I, I owe it so much. And uh, obviously just did my 10,000 hours of speaking. Yeah, um, I <laughs> constantly lecturing. And then from there, I got to work on a Michelangelo drawing show at the British Museum putting together all the learning and interpretation. So I was lecturing every day to about 500 people. Um, mm. And Michelangelo will always be my my true love. Um, and then I then I got into contemporary art in a kind of a strange way. I never intended to be in contemporary art, but I oh, moved to Hong okay. Kong. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, you know, there wasn't anything else I could do in Hong Kong in terms of like a museum infrastructure. There is now, but when I moved in 2007, there wasn't. So... I went back to university and did my postgraduate degree. And actually, I studied Italian Renaissance art in Hong Kong, which is a bit strange, but I had an incredible... So why did you go to Hong Kong in the first place? Well, we wanted... We got married young and we just was terrified of getting old before our time and we wanted an adventure. <laughs> and uh, we'd actually planned to go to New York and my husband's boss said that he worked in finance. You know, you can go to New York uh -huh. if you want, but there's a storm coming. The best piece of advice we ever had. And uh, that was like April 2007. And we moved wow. in September to Hong Kong instead because he said that's where the future is. You've got to get to Asia. You could start a company there for me, like an office. Mm. And, um, and of course, in November, the bank started to fail. So we yeah. were really happy that we hadn't gone to New York, put it that way, because it, it was nowhere near as bad in Hong Kong. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. And what was amazing about Hong Kong was that it just felt like the beginning of something. You know, there wasn't a contemporary art scene there. Like there had been the boom in Chinese contemporary art a couple of mm -hmm. years before. Everyone was talking about Beijing 798. They mm -hmm. were talking about these kind of Chinese artists coming out of nowhere seemingly to the rest of the world. But of course, they'd really come out of somewhere and being sold for over a million US dollars and this extraordinary appetite for Chinese contemporary artists becoming like a real thing in the air um and then as you know slowly in hong kong there are 
more people paying attention to art. And I started running a small, very small contemporary gallery, which was largely showing Western artists in Hong Kong. Okay. And it was amazing because it was like being a big fish in a small pond. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was used to working with Michelangelo. You know, he doesn't check mm. his own press release. <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> He doesn't have to be, you know, taken out for drinks and looked after. He doesn't come and hang his own works. And I was like, wow, what do I do with these artists? And so it was kind of amazing just learning in such a kind of incubator type environment where the stakes didn't feel that high. And I think we had so much freedom. And my boss you know, really crazy, brilliant woman called Mandy Darbo just gave me a lot of freedom just to get on with it. And so, you know, we ended up doing the first show in Asia for David Lynch. We did a huge show for Peter Blake, the great British pop artist, um, and did a lot of stuff that I was really proud of, actually. Um, and then when it came time to go home, you know, I'd finished my postgraduate degree. I'd been running this gallery for four years. Then, of course, by then I was completely addicted to contemporary art mm. and wanted to go back to London in a new way, you know, I wanted to work with all those YBA artists. I wanted to find the next generation of young artists. So I started uh, uh, the contemporary program at the Fine Arts Society, which was the oldest gallery in London. It was on New Bond Street. And I had had mm -hmm. an amazing four years there putting on shows. I mean, it was just, it was just fantastic. So what was your um, pitch to them then? How did they well, kind of they'd they'd had a contemporary department before, and it hadn't mm. it hadn't it hadn't continued. It, they'd kind of gone dead for six months or so. And I just said to them that I just felt that they needed to have their contemporary art be in dialogue with the modern British art that they were showing. So they were showing stuff that was more sort of like, you know, really kind of late Victorian through to the 1960s, all British, um, which was a period then that was really undervalued, not seen as particularly sexy. I think it's coming back now. But I was saying, you know, you need to have the next generation and you need to have the dialogue with the past. So I did this show, it was kind of my swan song. It was the last show I did before I left called... Um, what Marcel Duchamp taught me. And it was a question, mm -hmm. you know, it was like, listen, we all say Marcel Duchamp's the most influential artist of the 21st century, of the 20, of the 20th and 21st century, right? But mm -hmm. what did he actually teach you? So I asked 50 of these extraordinary mm, contemporary artists, you know, tell me what he taught you. So we had, you know, Cornelia Parker and um, Wally Beshti and Matt Collishaw, Gavin Turk, like uh, Michael Craig Martin, Peter Blake, like an amazing lineup of artists predominantly British and they all made a piece in response to the question um, but a couple of the artists actually made a response to the question but made it in response to the history of the gallery so we we um, the gallery actually was a place that Whistler, Whistler the great British artist lived for a period of time and um, after his famous court case he got bankrupted and he used the gallery to make prints and things like that. So there was an artist who made work in response to that. And suddenly you saw this place that was founded in 1876 with quite a different light. Like hmm. people had always respected it as an extraordinary, it was almost seen like an institution as opposed to a commercial gallery. But I think just having a bunch of artists who cared enough about the fabric of the building, about the history of the building, about the stories, about the narrative, to weave it into the modern day was really exciting. Um, but I also had an issue that, to be frank, that the gallery weren't really ready for a comprehensive mm -hmm. future, you know, which which was had a lot of contemporary in it. So um, I just thought, well, you know, I can't change them. I respect them, but I don't want to waste my life here banging my head against the wall the whole time. Sure. Can I ask you before you move on, mm. what did Duchamp teach you? Ah, such a good question. I think Duchamp taught me to be playful with art actually, to try and keep a, some, a kind of rebellious spirit. Because sometimes when you're working in this industry, particularly the, now, it seems so much about status and money and power and who's hot and who can do what for your career. And everything seems to be a means to something else. And Duchamp had such a great spirit that he valued art so highly that he was prepared to take it off its pedal stool because he knew it would mm -hmm. it would survive without a pedal stool. You know, it could just float in the air. And so I think it's to be to be two things at once, completely reverent towards art and allow it to dictate the course of your life. But at the same time, never to take it so seriously, because I think to do that is to erode your passion. Do you think that there's a challenge that art has become or, or be, being an artist has become too professionalized? Yeah, I think we're in an age where art has become hyper-professionalized, actually. And I think mm. artists are expected to have a position on every 
identity crisis that we're all living through collectively you know as a society and that you know artists are supposed to be activists now and that artists are also supposed to be great marketers and heaven forbid they have a side job teaching or um <laughs> doing commercial work i think that it's quite we, we put a lot of pressure on contemporary artists to be very successful to to have exhibitions that sell repeatedly to to meet certain industry goals like i don't know representing at the venice biennale or getting a museum solo show and I'm not saying none of those things should happen. They're extraordinary things. And I, I think so many artists are doing such a good job. But I think it's the expectation that that should happen to everybody. And that's the marker of success. Mm. The markers of success are external to the artist. And actually, we should go back to a system that allows the artist to dictate how they feel about their work and the world that they're in. And that they are able to create markers of success internally, as opposed to allow them to be dictated externally, you know? Mm. I mean, be, before we kind of move on with your career path, which was it, it's really fascinating to 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 listen to. But uh, I mean, on on this uh, topic of kind of professionalism, do you feel that you, in your role and throughout your career, that I mean, have you contributed in in a negative way to the art world being more professionalized, mm. or in a good positive question. way? I mean, what what is your yeah? Role? No, it's a good question because I do think we have to hold ourselves accountable. I think that. I think hopefully what I've tried to do is give artists space to just make the work they want to make. I've always been very strict mm -hmm. about that. Hopefully anyone you would speak to that received a commission from me made a joke like there was no commission <laughs> because I give no <laughs> guidelines. Um, I, I think that artists need to have their, their space to breathe. And I'm also very conscious of... You know, I even got asked by a newspaper this week in Germany to like pick my three hot artists and where you could buy them mm -hmm. and why they were great investments. And I just had to say, I'm sorry, but that's just not the way I speak yeah. about art. And I can certainly mm -hmm. contribute to your publication. I'd love to talk about what we're doing at Soho House and I'd love to talk about some of the artists we're working with. But I don't want to talk about them in those terms, which basically reduces them sure. to commodities. So hopefully I'm doing... I'm doing the work to resist that. But of course, I do work in the art market and I do... Um, you know, and I do give artists career opportunities, you know, I will always be part of the mechanism, but I suppose it's about creating a balance within the mechanism that you feel comfortable with. And hopefully I'm on the right side of it where I don't really feel like I'm exploiting mm. artists for my own or my company's gain. Mm. Let's get back to, to, to this a little bit later yeah. then, but uh, <clears throat> okay. So what happened after your your, venture, your four year venture right so. yeah you're making me think about my life it's interesting so I so I left because I just knew that I my creativity was gonna you know I really achieved something yeah. with that Duchamp show and then I knew that I was gonna maybe have to wait a few years to do it again I just thought I can't do that I'm so excited and I'd for the last couple of years um before I did the Duchamp show I'd started making tv and I'd really loved it, it such an incredible opportunity to become an art historian on TV and I'd gone to China mm -hmm. and made a program about the Dunhuang Caves. And How did you get that gig? I mean... Well, it was a funny story. I, I mean, it was totally accidental. I was... Uh, I had a, I worked with some artists, some fantastic artists, the husband and wife duo, Robin Nick Carter, and they make... They, they took these old master paintings and brought them to life. So using the most cutting-edge digital technology, they would basically bring the painting to life. So there was one that was of this dead frog... And the frog is like, a, you know, it's a 16th century Dutch painting, Vanitas. Mm -hmm. and, and so what they do is show the death of the dog. Sorry, not the death, the, the rotting of the frog. So the frog slowly decomposes. I think it's a one or a two hour cycle. And at a certain point, mm -hmm. all these maggots come out, but it's happening Im imperceptibly. So you can kind of walk past the painting without knowing it's slowly changing, kind of Harry Potter-esque. Mm -hmm. Really beautiful meditation on Vanitas and the passing of time and the way in which we experience art. The problem is, as an art dealer, you can't really communicate the complexity of the work through stills, which you can do with a painting or a sculpture. So, I mean, you can't be complex with stills, but you can get a bit closer. But with a, you know, with, with a time-based media piece, it's really difficult. So what I used to do was just film myself in front of them talking about them because I couldn't just send the video to someone because it would be, a, mm -hmm. you know, a risk of their intellectual property, plus the fact that they were in these beautiful frames and it was all part of the experience seeing it on the wall. So anyway, I would just stand in front of it talking, explaining it. And the, a newspaper heard about the painting and said, send us the clip. And I said, well, we don't have any individual clips, but there's one of me talking in front of it, which they liked and they used. And then I, a, a producer just saw it on the Telegraph website and thought, oh, they'd been mm -hmm. looking for 
a young woman who worked in contemporary art to be on a TV show. <laughs> and there weren't apparently many of us. There's still, you know, it's better. But when when I was um, working at the Fine Arts Society, I was the youngest director uh, that they'd ever had. How old were you you know, it, I was third, I was 29 when I was made a director. So they yeah. were 126 years old. And I think I was only the third ever woman to be made a director in 126 huh. years. So, you know. Wow, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I got this job making these TV shows, which I still make, which I was so fortunate that we've been on the air so long, 10 years for a program wow. called Portrait Artist of the Year, which is on Sky Arts. It's a mm. painting competition about portraiture. And then we made another one called Landscape Artist of the Year, which is now nine years old, which is about landscape. And... Uh, and I did that and then I presented some other stuff. So when I left the gallery, I just had a year off and I just did loads of TV work. And uh, I was based in Rome and it was as brilliant as it sounds. <laughs> it was How so was good. that uh, perceived by the art industry? Like your friends in, in like, you know, mm. yeah. I felt a bit embarrassed. If, yeah, yeah, if I'm honest, I felt a bit embarrassed because I felt like, mm. oh no, I don't have a proper job. You know, being a TV <laughs> presenter didn't seem like a proper job and being based in Rome just seemed like an extended holiday. But I was, my husband's a, you know, a, a great philosopher and reads a lot of philosophy. He's done his master's in philosophy. And he, he's really helped me reconcile myself with how to, how to live a life, how to be the architecture of your life. You know, we kept coming back to something that Nietzsche said, which is that, you know, you shouldn't live in bad faith. And I, I felt like I'd been living mm -hmm. in bad faith. I, I wasn't in touch with things that I was passionate about. I'd spent all that time in Italy as a young person really just head over heels in love with art, learning every day, finding a new little church with a cool new painting in it that I hadn't understood before. And, and I just wanted to get back to it. And it was the best thing I ever did. Like if you can do it, even if you have to take on debt to do it, I would really recommend it because it just recentered me. And I don't think I'll make another bad career decision again for the rest of my life because I, I know what I've got to lose, you know, peace of mind. Mm -hmm. You can't put a price on it. And then basically so, I only left Italy. Yeah. I don't know what would have happened. It was a sliding doors moment. We had, didn't have a long-term plan, but we were having a great time, obviously. And then Nick Jones um, offered me this job at Soat House. And I was like, well, if I'm going to leave this idyllic lifestyle in Rome for anything, it will be <laughs> for that job, which I'd always thought would be a very great and cool job. And, and what year was this? It was 2016. Yeah. Mm. So back then, So House was not as expanded as it is now right i mean no we didn't a, have as many houses yeah, yeah i should probably do the numbers i don't know what it is i suspect we had something like probably late teens probably like 17 or 18 mm -hmm. houses when i joined maybe mm -hmm. um probably less actually but then yeah then i joined and we opened a, we opened a lot of houses quite quickly it was quite a period of expansion so we also opened the ned which is a sister company so i did the ned in london because Last this is around the, the time where Soho House got also some external investors, right? And kind of t took the leaps of becoming really this big, big colossus in terms of membership. Isn't yeah, that I mean, I mean, it's still comparably quite small if you think about it in terms of like a, a huge hotel chain or something, you know. Yeah, it's yeah, hard to course, benchmark yeah. Soho House because there isn't really anything quite like it. I always find it quite difficult when I'm talking to an artist in a totally new territory you know, like, a, would you know, soon we'll do, you know, or one day we'll do Soa House Tokyo. And it'd be very interesting, as it was when I did Mumbai, to, to have those conversations mm -hmm. about who we are and what we do. Because, yeah, we're a private members club, but we're also, we're also in lots of different cities. And we also have these hotel rooms and we also have these gyms and we also have these working spaces. It's a, yeah, it's, a, it's um, you know, fantastically original. Hmm. So, okay, 2016, Nick Jones offered you this job. Um, you accepted. So, what was your task? Like, what what was your brief? Did you have a brief? Or, <laughs> well, it was very laid back. You know, I said, "Listen, you've got such a great collection." When I joined, there were two thousand artworks about, and they were mm -hmm. all small and they were all black and white, um, <laughs> with a couple of exceptions. And that was because the curator before, who was freelance, um, very cleverly came up with a great solution, which was that you know she didn't work for the company. Her name's Francesca Gavin, really spectacular curator, great contacts. I inherited such a lovely collection from her. She didn't work for the company, so she didn't know what the architecture was going to be like or the spaces. And so she would turn up with a bunch of local artists, very cool artists. They were all small black and white things. And basically she could just make them fit the house. She could just always make them look good because there was just endless opportunities for kind of art Tetris, right? 
So I said to Nick, listen, you've got great names. There's amazing pieces in the collection, but I think you can be more ambitious with what you're doing. You could have art be more site specific, obviously more colorful, get some sculpture in. And Nick said, yeah, we're ready to do that. You know, the art collection's grown Mm -hmm. and grown and our sense of it and our understanding of it has grown. And as the company's pushing forward, you know, they were really pushing the design boundaries when I joined. They still are now, but there was a real turning point, you know, some fantastically innovative design happening. And it was like the art, he was like, yeah, I agree. Do the same with the art. And so... Yeah, I, I have a lot of freedom. You know, I really value my freedom. I, I. What did you do in your first hundred days, let's say? When I first was, well, first of all, I tried to get my head around what the collection was, trying to get it all in one place. Mm. Um, it had been sort of put together slightly ad hoc. We didn't have brilliant paperwork, so it was kind of geeky at first, really, just getting the, um, getting the archaeology right, putting it all together in one place, and. Then I spent a lot of time in artist studios. I visited various houses. I really tried to understand what this company was and what it meant to the members. I did a lot of talks for the members, trying to use them as an opportunity to hear from them. Um, so I would just sort of, you know, I'd go to like Berlin Galleries Weekend, for example, and do some great mm-hmm. studio visits or um, obviously in Freeze in London, host a big lunch for all the artists. And then the the project started coming in thick and fast. So actually the first thing I curated was the NED in London, which was a sister company mm-hmm. to Sower House, um, where I decided to make quite a pointed statement so um it was in the city of london and i kind of thought the city of london is such patriarchal space you know it was like these big buildings you have this impression that women are excluded and i looked at the FTSE 100 ceo gender ratio so the top 100 Mm -hmm. companies in the country the people running them um looked at the split of gender so of the 100 that at the time that i did it there were 93 men and only seven women Wow. Yeah. And we were right in the middle of the city. So I took that number and made it the basis of the collection. So the collection was 93 women and seven men. I inverted it. And the seven (laughs) men only got in because they collaborated with a woman. Can I I mean, just as as a side note, um, because when I did a bit of research before our, our, our talk today, I mean, it seems to me that, of course, having this kind of presenter background and, you know, you're very media savvy, but you also seem to know how to kind of use PR as a vehicle to get attention and has that been kind of deliberate or is it by accident? I mean, now you're obviously explaining that it was kind of part of the plan with this exhibition, but is this something you think about? Well, I think my primary motivation for that collection was to, to make a point. Yeah. Cause I was cross about the gender disparity in the art world. And I thought that the city was such a great vehicle. If you think about business and finance and mm-hmm. appending it to that would give us more of a voice. Um, and, you know, people said to me when I put that collection together, how are you going to find people? Well-meaning, I mean, like people trying to be helpful said, how will you find 93 women? They just didn't think that there were 93 women in London <laughs> who were making art at a great level you know and it was like wow it was so depressing actually um and so yeah I mean I I I was very purposeful about it I didn't really care about getting press for the NED because oh my god Mm -hmm. the NED got so much press when it opened I cared about people caring about this issue and so that's why I that's why I did it um yeah but I mean in a positive way that yeah it's it's also like a platform for these artists right sure And also what's interesting is that like a lot of artists, and I agree with them, don't really want to be put in boxes. So, you know, like even if you go all the way Mm -hmm. back to the beginning of the 20th century and you look at the shows that Peggy Guggenheim was putting on or whatever, and she was putting on like these 31 women shows. And there were so many women like George O'Keefe was like, I don't want to be in a woman artist show. I'm not a woman artist. I'm an artist. Or Barbara Hepworth would be livid to be called a woman artist. I get it. You don't want to create this like segregation of gender. But I was so I was nervous. But when I asked the artist, they all said yes, because they knew that it was making a point. Um, And they liked the no one said no, basically, you know, it was like Tracy Emin. We had Jenny Holzer, um, Susan Hiller, Sarah Lucas, Gillian Waring, Lisa Bryce, Lubaina Himid, who then went on to win the Turner Prize, Helen Martin. Um, Yeah, it was it was amazing. It was so exciting. Yeah. Yeah, you basically got the top names. Yeah, and but what was great was it kind of came back to your point earlier on is what did Duchamp teach me? To be reverent with art, to care so much about mm-hmm. it, but also to still be quite playful. 
Like, because I did shove 100 works in one room. I mean, they're all small works. Like, they're really <laughs> crammed in. So there's a kind of, like, come on, we're making this point because we have to feeling to it, you know? Um, there were so many ways you could do it, which would be more aesthetic or more calm. But I was like, no, this is what we're going to do. Um, and that, I felt, was in line with my Duchamp show, which was um, to, to experiment. So how much has your kind of role changed then since uh, you joined? Well, um, it's changed in the way that we're constantly trying to make the collection better. So when I first started, it was just like collection to collection to collection. You know, I do White City and then I would do Amsterdam and then I would be in mm. Mumbai and then I would be in L.A. And it was just moving from house to house. And now I spend a lot more time thinking strategically, thinking about what this collection will be in 50 years time, thinking about the houses that I didn't curate and how well they've aged or if they've aged badly, mm -hmm. just in terms of the art collection. You know, I've redone a lot of houses in the last year. So I've just finished actually redoing L.A. in the West Hollywood. Okay. Because it just didn't meet any of my standards of um, inclusivity, quite frankly. So, and it yeah, didn't have enough okay. LA artists in it. And now it's all all LA artists and it's very inclusive. Um, and I'm about to do meatpacking in New York and um, I've done Shoreditch House in London. Uh, added a lot of work to 76 Dean Street in Soho last year. Because obviously as you're building these new collections, you know, when you do something like Stockholm, you've got the most cutting edge contemporary artists, an equal gender split. Lots of people of color, lots of artists who identify LGBTQA plus, like mm -hmm. lots of different stories, lots of different narratives. And they're the best collection you can do in that moment. And then it just makes you reflect on the older houses and say, how do I keep the spirit of a collection that was built in 2008 when East London was the coolest yeah. place on earth? And you've got that short yeah, house. Black sense. Yeah, that mm. sort of black and white collection. You've got to keep something of that, but you've also got to update it. I mean, it's, you know, it's over 10 years have passed. We've got to um, tell a story about now. So that's an interesting period that I'm in where I've now, um, I suppose, got the bravery to think about the older houses and mm. to put my put my mark on them basically to try and make them live up to the standards of which we're curating all the new houses mm. but beyond kind of uh, the, the the quality elements of, of the art that you're hanging or curating what about let's say um the boredom of guests <laughs> or members basically <laughs> like if you're seeing the same paintings or or artworks year yeah. after year after year i mean obviously yeah. you kind of get a bit bored as well right yeah but then so is that I, something I agree you with you or, yeah, yeah i think you and i probably would because we're such like art yeah. lovers we're always looking for the new thing but i'll tell you what some of the members they don't like change you know they love their pictures mm. they're like their pictures it's like i'm taking it out of their house and i yeah, really respect them for that you know i admire them for that the point is it is supposed to be the members art collection so I am being a bit of a pain if I come in and take away your favorite thing and I have to justify it and I have to make sure that what I'm putting in, you'll also fall in love with, hopefully. So, you know, it's not, it's it's an interesting collection. You know, it's not a museum collection. It's not in a pristine white box. Mm. You bring your baby in, you eat next to it, you drink next to it, you dance next to it. It's not a corporate collection because it's not in storage no, or yeah. in offices. You know, it's not a personal collection. But it contributes to the collection. member experience. Yeah, it's an unusual collection, right? I always say it's like mm -hmm. a it's a show pony. It's a working horse, not a show pony. Mm. So what? How how do you define kind of the program if you have any uh, for for the for the houses? Is well, there like I a mean, we're very we're statement? very much led by the cities we're opening in. So you know, mm -hmm. Stockholm is a collection which is a hundred percent artist born, based or trained in Sweden, with a huge percentage of them in Stockholm. Okay, so you, you decide to open a house in Stockholm. So what would you do then next? I mean, what would be the first steps? And can, can well, you I'd, walk us through the, the whole journey? So I'd sit down with the design team, look at the building, look at the architectural plans, make observations, try and, you know, factor the art in from the very beginning. Can we have a hanging piece here? Are we allowed to do this? How about this? You know, in some sites I can have artists design rugs or um, wallpapers or things like that, which is more integral to the building. Um, we've had an artist do a swimming pool now. David Shrigley did a pool for us wow. on the south coast of England. Yeah, in Brighton, which is really cool. Um, mm. So thinking about things like that. And then I visit the site. And obviously, while I'm at the site, I'll spend a lot of time in the city in museums and galleries. Um, if there's an How do you art find the galleries? In... Well, I mean, just online research. Um mm -hmm. 
I always really start with art fairs actually because art fairs show the best galleries in the world typically and then you can look you can search them really easily so I can see okay who which Swedish galleries show in Basel you know um mm. or which which galleries from Bangkok are showing in Hong Kong Basel for example, so we look at that, we sort of start to look at the galleries. You have a meeting with a couple of galleries and they give you recommendations. Artists give you recommendations. We tend to start with the museum level artists first and kind of work our way down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then then it, when it's the, the, the hardest artists to find, to be honest with you, are kind of mid-career artists because particularly mid-career women, for example, the the established museum level artists, you'll trip up over, you'll see them all the time. Mm-hmm. The young, cool artists who just graduated that have been signed by galleries, there's press about them usually and you can find them. People talk about them. There's buzz about them on Instagram. You know, they're shown at art fairs. It's the ones who are in that kind of late 40s, early 50s point of their career mm-hmm. who've steadily been making important work, but who um, maybe don't have the same platform, same voice. And that's where we work a bit harder to find those artists a lot of it is word of mouth. The members are great. Um, and I mean, it's really lovely. I mean, it's like being a detective. You know, we have these huge databases. And the thing is also, because I've been doing this so long now, I've got an ongoing database. It's like a uh, something called Artists Without Houses that we have. And I can be anywhere. I can be in the new museum in New York and I'll just look at all the different pieces and I fall in love with an artist, do a bit more research, write them down on this database. And I'll say, well, they, they were born in Toronto they now live in Lima and they studied in Miami, right? So then I've suddenly got three mm-hmm. cities that I can think about for them because I like to work with local artists. Clever. So then when the time mm-hmm. comes to open in Lima, for example, I can search the database and see who pops up that I've already looked at from Lima. So I'm constantly keeping a note of artists. Okay, so back to Stockholm then. So mm. do, you, do you want to mention like some of the galleries or artists that you kind of first encountered and why did you fall in love with them? and? Yeah, sure. I mean, the Stockholm galleries were in have there. Like, I really found them to be incredibly supportive of this endeavor. It's interesting because sometimes you go into a city and the galleries don't know Sower House. And naturally, there can be potentially a bit of a suspicion or a concern because people don't want their artists to go into like a a bad hotel or something. And I get that. But actually, obviously, as you can imagine, in Stockholm, it wasn't the case. Like, everybody is so cool and, you know, well-traveled and... Um, you know, knew it. Been waiting for decades well, for so. I wouldn't so. say that, but you might say that. But you know, it was, it was really, it was really nice um, to to be in that position. Put it that way, and that the quality of work there. So you know, we we'd have a conversation with like Nordenhaker, um, with Belenius, with um, I've got to think of all the galleries' names now. Cecilia um, Hillstrom, GSA, Magnus Carlson, yeah. yeah. Wetterling. Um, Loyal Gallery had a couple of great Swedish artists mm-hmm. um, and then um, Andren Ship. how do you say that Andren Shipchenko sorry it's been a while yeah. since I've been there and all my pronunciation has yeah. gone and then there yeah. are galleries that we've worked with for other cities that I have always I've always known that they've got a, um, an artist so um, Carly Gebauer in Berlin they had Cecilia Edelfuck mm. for example or Hollybush Gardens in London had yeah. Charlotte um, Johannesson so galleries that I work with for other sites in the world because of course you're not only going to find Swedish artists there how do you think the artists are responding to this I mean I, I and you know and it, just as an anecdote yesterday I was um, uh at a dinner um, hosted by um, a gallerist or two gallerists and there were artists there and they actually opening tonight. And, you know, I told them that we were going to have this conversation today and, and they said, oh, well, you know, you have to ask Kate, it's like, how, how do I kind of, how do I get selected as an artist? You know, if I'm an, a young emerging mm. artist or if I'm running a new gallery and, you know, I might not be on Kate's radar, I might not do museum kind of level. Uh, you know exhibitions and things like that so yeah what would be kind of how do you get through your needle's eye if you're you know starting your career or running a new well I mean we do try and really hard to get a lot of emerging artists into the it's it's probably 30 or 40 percent very emerging artists and then the rest very established um but it is yeah you're right it's harder to find them I mean we we rely quite a lot on the fairs that we go to in the region for the younger galleries 
But can they email you? I mean, can they oh, of can course. they email you and say hi, Kate? Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm an artist, of course, it happens yeah. all the time. Happens mm. all the time. People Instagram okay. me, and I look yeah. at everything. You know, no, I'm always looking. And the thing is, even if we finish this collection in Stockholm, which we have, you know, we you never know what's going to happen. We might open another site there, or their work might suit another collection. Because although I say we work with local artists, you know, for some projects, I like to make have an international collection within one site. So, for example, in Rome. We did a project during the pandemic called Caranta, which is, Caranta is the Italian word for 40. It's where the word quarantine mm-hmm. comes from because you'd have to quarantine for 40 days when you arrived in mm-hmm. Venice if, because during the plague. Anyway, so we took this concept and we got 40 artists mm. from all of, around the world who were all in different Soraha cities. And we asked them to make a work together during the pandemic. So we'd take an artist who was in Toronto and then they would partner with someone in Barcelona, for example. But sometimes they never met the whole life. They still haven't met, but they would maybe do a phone call or a Zoom or they would be pen pals. The one they'd make the work digitally or maybe someone would start it and post it to the other one. It was so much about the creative expression of how you would tackle the, the the game. And it was so fun. And like, I loved what came out of it. I loved the way the artists worked together. And so we definitely want to do something like that again. So that's exciting to us. So, so that's why we never say we're finished with, you know, don't need any more Thai artists. It's like, no, we always do. We're always interested. So are you going to stay here for the rest of your life? Or I mean, <laughs> you, know, you seem to have like the dream job. I know, honestly, like, I know. But... <laughs> and it's, it is a bit of a joke because I've been here seven years and I, I, there is no other job. I mean, that's the problem. I love it. I love it. I love working yeah. with artists. I love hopefully being helpful to artists. I love staying in contact with them. I love the fact that when I go to Barcelona, there's like 20 people I could look up to hang out with who give me great restaurant recommendations, whose lives I care about, who, you know, I love hearing from artists. And so... It's it's just the global access, which is quite phenomenal. And as long as I've got the freedom to keep doing it um, in the way that I'm doing it, then and putting the artist first, then yeah, mm. I will. <laughs> yeah, you won't be able to get rid of me. How, how much are not involved in the kind of uh, the program of the houses? So, f- for example, I hosted an artist talk at Soho Stockholm the other day. And, you know, the, there are many artist talks uh, taking place, right, globally. Uh, there are many other events taking place. Are you involved in setting that program? No, I mean, I would, yeah, in an alternate universe, if we had like five houses, then I would jump for joy doing it and I would be happy to do it. But mm. there's just so many. And so we have a great member events team within each house and then that's what they do because it's really important that you've got a constant, The you know, the artwork's permanent, but there's new artists coming up all the time. So I think it's quite important that you've got someone who's dedicated to member events in each city who's responding to the members' ideas and taking um taking the events mm. um but of course i do throw events in when you know when i know that someone's got a great book coming out or a great exhibition on you know if they approach me then i send it back to the house and say i'd love for you guys to take this forward and and i do a lot of talks and things in the houses myself but yeah no mm-hmm. it's a big company now i mean we have 39 sites um 39 yeah. houses now so like unfortunately it's it's just hard enough keeping track of the art the more, mm. you know um I can't don't, there's not enough hours in the day to do the events too but i I think um, so. There's no like strategy or program for kind of catering the the members that have a deep interest in art. Let's say. Well, the individual houses have their strategy, and they'll have yeah, a, a sense like of a how many talks they no. want to do per year, and mm. who would be the great people to do it. And um, but it's very responsive to the, what the members want, which I think is important. Mm-hmm. So, how many uh, pieces do you have in a collection now? We've got just shy of eight thousand. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Hmm. So where do you foresee the the kind of collection in 50 years? You meant, you you said the 50-year mm. horizon earlier, right? So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I probably shouldn't say 50 years. I'd probably be dead. Maybe I should say 20 years and I'd be around to enjoy it. Um, I mean, I'm only 41. I, um, where do I see it? I want it to be publicly accessible, whether that's through books or television or museum mm-hmm. shows. I think that what we have is very special. You know, we've built something with the trust of artists over the course of this period of time over 14 countries and counting and what it is is a snapshot you know this is really shows you some of the best contemporary art being made in the world um there are amazing themes that come out you know looking at artists who are based just outside of bangkok and seeing the resonances that their work has with an artist who's really established in nashville and you think they have no idea that the other one exists but I know because I know them both. And it's just such a privileged position to have that global overview. And the collection, I think, therefore, really speaks of a really exciting moment in time. You know, like the first mm-hmm. two decades of this century and the way in which 
our attention has shifted to listening to contemporary artists and seeing them as people that reflect our times. And I think that that collection could be really valuable to people in the future to try and understand this moment. So there's definitely a responsibility. I feel like I'm the custodian of something and I don't know what shape mm. it will necessarily take, but that's my motivation. And I think, mm. um, I think it's not um, an impossible task. And I think it's something that the members would like as well. You know, I don't want to strip all the houses out of their art, but sure. you know, it'd be nice, but this is the members collection. It would be nice for them to see it um, understood by a wider audience. And in the hospitality industry, I mean, it, it, do you have any benchmarks or are you leading or I mean, I, I, I honestly don't know so much about mm. the hospitality industry and art collecting. So, yeah, I mean, there are other great collections, of course, but I think just in terms of the global reach that we have, I don't know anything like it. I mean, the fashion houses have great art programs, you know, mm -hmm. like you look at what Dior yes. does, you look at Cartier or Louis Vuitton, like extraordinary. Yes. Mm. Um, that's not necessarily always about permanent collections. It's a lot about programming and exhibitions and foundations and residencies and things like that. So they're the people that I look to and really admire and think about how we could um, how we could learn lessons from what they're doing really well. But just in terms of pure hospitality of having bricks and mortar and art on display, I um I I don't unfortunately because I. <laughs> It would be lovely to have a friend who did the same thing that I could steal <laughs> ideas from. But that, there's nothing quite like it, no. Hmm. So, I mean, where do you draw your inspiration from? Hmm. I draw my inspiration from artists, you know, from books, from, hmm. from... I mean, I'm constantly reading. I probably read two books a week. I'm a real nerd. From, from the work they're making, from exhibitions, from historic art. You know, I love... That's one of the great things about making the TV. Like I, I work with a lot of contemporary artists yeah. on TV, but I'm also making TV shows about historic artists. So mm -hmm. that's really important as well. How can you bring in the historical art into Soho House then? Because you're focusing on contemporary art, obviously. But Yeah, but for example, when we're building the Sao Paulo art collection, it's really important to know what happened in the beginning part of the 20th century in Brazil and the way that they had an explosion mm -hmm. of modernist art. Because it really is the foundation of contemporary artists working today so you know I say to my team I need you to understand where we've come from in that city um, and a lot of that comes through conversation but you really have to do the research as well you actually have to have an art historical sense of, of what you're doing hmm. so I mean obviously you're very knowledgeable and you have a lot of experience you're traveling globally um, if you would kind of define the current big trend in in, in the art world what would that be and how do you see uh, it changing maybe in the next couple of years and mm. what do you foresee coming? I think we've come out of a period which was very conceptual and very driven by time-based media. You remember there was just every mm -hmm. time you went to Venice Biennale, it was all video. And I think we're now in an era which is very much about painting, actually, and figurative mm -hmm. painting is is um, reigning supreme. Painting is by no means dead, clearly. And I think we're in an age when there are a lot of new voices being heard and a lot of the work being made is about people's individual experiences of life and so there's a lot of work there about identity politics and um the 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 way in which the world is shifting that we have so many opposing forces you know you just look at a country like the united states and just how divided that's become and how heightened that yeah. is and that's really reflected in the art um and I, I mean, we're definitely living in an age now where there are going to be a lot of young artists struggling financially. And I really hope that um, we don't lose a lot of great voices just because it's just so expensive to become an artist now and so difficult. I think that... What can you, you know, do then with Soul House? I mean, can you kind of introduce a foundation or scholarships mm. or... We have a foundation at Soul House. Um, we have a fellowship. So a lot of young creative people are given mentorship, um, a whole program of activity. They're given... Um, free membership and then discounted membership for the first couple of years after they've been a fellow and all the artists obviously I look at all of their work and I give them feedback I do talks and I yeah we often acquire their work as well for the collection so there's that program that's happening but in terms of what I do in my remit with the collection you know we 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 are constantly trying to think about supporting the artists. So whether that's finding a young artist that you really believe in and giving them a great commission to do a mural, so they've got some money to keep in their studio, they've got some membership, they've got some credit to use at the houses. Um, that's it's really our motivation, honestly. I mean, like, mm. yeah, of course, I want the houses to look nice, but the design team do a great job. <laughs> like, it's their job <laughs> to make it look nice. They do such a good job. I really feel like my job is to be a patron of the art in that city, to care about the artists, to give them a place to come together 
to yeah you know to yeah i'm not embarrassed to say to give them some dinners i mean it's nice that they can come and have <laughs> that at soa house you know you gotta eat yeah you gotta eat so okay <laughs> i mean rounding this off um i'm gonna yeah. ask you the impossible question it's like asking who is your favorite child <laughs> yeah but uh, which house is uh, have uh, has the best art collection at the moment the most interesting art collection let's say Oh, it's your devil. Um, I get asked this a lot and I tend to say the house that we've just finished because you kind of want every house you do to be better <laughs> than the last, right? Which was? Miami Pool House, which I was really proud okay. of because everyone said you'll never find great artists based in Miami. You know, it's all street art and people were a bit down on Miami who didn't live there. And of course, people who live there know they're great artists based there. And we did put a beautiful collection together and it it has a great mural and it's quite a punchy collection actually really vibrant really colorful a little bit wacky like so miami. i love I, I i love that one and also i love going to miami of course as we all do mm. um but i think probably the one that immediately came to mind is one that isn't open yet which is mexico city because on paper i Ooh. think we've delivered our most ambitious collection yet interesting when is it mm. opening hmm later in the year <laughs> okay <laughs> Bit vague. great listen kate i could go on on and on it's it's, oh. it's really a privilege speaking to you uh actually my last question is is it really possible to speak about mm. art like we do you know you're hosting a show we're talking in a podcast mm. i think talking about art is always secondary to just being with art yeah it's it, it's what props the art up but it's what we do to kill time till mm. we can go and see another great piece let's go look at some art <laughs> so with that said, I think for those of you listening that are not members of Soho House, please become members. And for those of us that are members, let's just continue to enjoy the fantastic collection that you have built up. So thank you, oh. Kate. It was a privilege. Thank you so much, Roland. Yeah. And uh, I wish you a great weekend. And um, yeah, thank you for joining. This was the Art Bystander. Uh, I'm Roland Philippe Kretschmar. And thank you, Kate, for joining the show today.